Hey gang, it's your pal uh, John Gruber here. Kind of a curveball show this week. I was out in San Francisco for, of all things, Microsoft's Build Developer Conference. More or less, it's Microsoft's version of WWDC. And we talk about that on the show. But one of the things that uh, that I got offered, Microsoft offered to give me a room in the conference uh, Thursday afternoon to do a live audience episode of the talk show. And it kind of came together, not quite last minute, but but close. And I took it as an opportunity to have a new guest because I met uh, you know, some people from the other side of the fence who cover Microsoft more than Apple. And so Ed Bott, whose coverage of Microsoft I've been following for a long time, many years, big fan of his Twitter account too. Uh, never met him in person before though, uh, so took the opportunity to invite him on the show. That's what you're going to hear. So this was recorded in Moscone West, the people in the audience were all attendees of the Build Developer Conference. I think it came off okay. You'll hear from me. I'm, I didn't do any sponsor reads during the live event, so I, I'm recording those in post, which is unusual. I usually I just do them right in the middle of the show, but it did, didn't seem right with the live audience. Uh, so I'll pop back in probably three more times with interesting information from this show's great sponsors and uh, enjoy the show. I think it came off pretty well. I think I had a good time. Oh yeah, before we start, one more thing. We're not sure what happened. I don't know what happened. But the audio file that we got from Microsoft cut, it clipped a few minutes from the end of the show. I think it was like exactly 74 minutes. So our best guess is that maybe they were recording it right to a CD uh, and there's a 74 minute time limit. So not much got cut off. The show didn't go much longer than that. But I actually, you know, at the actual event, I did like a nice thank you to everybody who showed up and to Ed and and it wrapped up rather neatly, whereas what you're going to hear here ends a bit abruptly. But the good thing is it, it kind of works out because it ends in a very Microsoftian way. Easily, number one question uh, that I've been asked this week is, why are you here? <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's very easy. I'm here for the free Xbox. Aren't we all? <laughs> Everybody get their free Xbox? Yeah. So, <laughs> says the guy from Microsoft. <laughs> um, so, I'm here. This is the talk show. This is my podcast. I'm John Gruber. Uh, I'm assuming the people who are here are probably familiar with me. My guest this week is Ed Bott. Hi, John. Thank you for joining me. Long time. How long have you been covering Microsoft as a journalist? Uh, full time since 1992. Right. It, in my opinion, as long as I've been following tech, I've, your byline and stuff on Microsoft is it's in my mind. I, couldn't, I, I don't remember when you weren't. I, I don't either. All right. So. <laughs> uh, it is very different than an Apple conference. I'm, I'm a foreigner here. Uh, you know, I go to WWDC uh, just about every year. This is my first uh, Microsoft developer conference that I've attended. Very interesting. Similar in certain fundamental ways, but very different. Uh, I can't think of a better obvious answer is that everybody who came to this conference, what, 5,000 attendees on day one was told, hey, guess what? You're getting an Xbox One. Is that what it's called? The Xbox One? Xbox One. That's it. Uh, which was, I think, a very popular move. Uh, at Apple conferences, one time, like 11 years ago, they gave away uh, a mouse. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, 
this year they had uh, a broken mouse was featured in uh, in one of the demos that that they were they were doing. It was kind of uh, it was it was supposed to be a typical enterprise app that uh, that that someone in the audience might develop for their company, and so they used one of the great Microsoft fake company names, Fabricam, mm -hmm. and uh, and they built a mobile app. Uh, and so he was able to report that he was uh, giving a keynote address, and his mouse was broken. He could take a picture of the mouse, and uh, and then you know send that to facilities, and facilities could bring him a new mouse. And the interesting thing about that app was that they demonstrated it on an iPhone. Right. No, that's very true. So uh, it's strange times, right? Very weird times. I, I've had several people this week uh, remind me of that scene from Ghostbusters, you know, dogs and cats living together, mass hysteria. Uh, and, uh, and I think, you know, I think they expect fireworks here. Uh, and and I, I think in a way they're going to be disappointed because what, what we really have here is uh, two guys who understand their respective worlds. Um, and those worlds have been far apart for a long time, and you know, and, and there was just this sort of Venn diagram where you had this little slice in the middle, and now those worlds are, you know, they're 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 overlapping significantly more than they ever have. Yeah, I mean, I it's, I have to acknowledge it because everybody, I mean, I can't not acknowledge it that I was actually featured in the keynote today, wearing my other hat, not the Daring Fireball hat, but Q Branch, the the software company I work at with my colleagues Brent and Dave. Uh, iPhone only right now, uh, and but we're using Azure, we've announced today, for our back-end sync, and, and they were nice enough to ask us if we would do a little promotional video and talk about it and say why. Uh, and, you know, it's all, an awful lot of, what? Holy shit. <laughs> right? I, like, I, I like watched the video. I didn't get to see the video before. And I, why, I was in the keynote, and I watched the video. I was like, okay, I didn't look like too big. Excellent production values. <laughs> Super nice. Very nice. And, and the message was exactly the truth. You know, it wasn't like, you know, here's the lines to give. It was, they asked questions, and Brent and I gave honest answers, and that's what they put in the video. I thought that was great. And I thought, I've got to check Twitter. <laughs> I believe the first tweet that I saw after that uh, video ran with somebody who said, hell froze over. <laughs> I saw that, that was good. That was very good. And there were an awful lot of them with pictures, too, which was very weird for me. Like, I am not used to browsing my Twitter replies and seeing my picture over and over again. <laughs> very unusual for me. Uh, but interesting. But I also think, fundamentally, you know, like you said, with Venn diagram with ever increasing overlap between the Microsoft and Apple worlds is that it's the truth. There's like a an honesty to what I'm hearing from Microsoft, not just with Azure, but a lot of things. Um, that when they say, "Hey, it's a multi-device, multi-platform world," that they mean it. That they're, they've, there's like an acceptance that it's not going to be 95% of all computing devices running Windows anymore. That's over. And right. you know, how do you stay? How, do they, how does Microsoft stay relevant and successful and grow in that world? Well, one way is by spending. I think it's 3.2 billion dollars in capex this year um, to build out Azure. 
you know, uh, and you know, putting basically you know large chunks of the the Visual Studio the Visual Studio uh, development environment into that cloud uh, so that it will run in any browser right. on any on on any device. Um, I mean that that kind of of expenditure, you know, is really perfect evidence. Money talks. I think that especially with the people who read my stuff and are coming from a more, you know, Apple, more interested in Apple perspective, I think that Microsoft's efforts in that Azure direction, you know, like you, I didn't even know that number, 3.2 billion in CapEx, but that's, that's a huge number. I mean, there are very few companies in the world that even could spend 3.2 billion dollars. I mean, that's, that's a really short list. That's because it's a... Right, that, that, that's one-sixth of a WhatsApp. <laughs> well, the difference there is that Microsoft is an established com company is, is operating in a world where their CapEx expenditures come from actual profits from actual revenues and not from and, Facebook and, stock <laughs> option funny money. And there's an ROI on that CapEx, right. too, because, you know, you're going to be paying, presumably, uh, for that uh, for those Azure instances right. and all that bandwidth and stuff, and there's a lot of, of you know, not just startups but Fortune 500 companies that are using uh, that that infrastructure as well. I mean, the other thing about uh, about Azure, when you go, I'm a I'm an Azure user myself. I have a MSDN subscription, so I get like. 50 bucks of credit each month, and you say, you know, what can you get for 50 bucks? The shocking thing is that I can run my website on it, and I think that uses like $7 worth of credit wow. over, uh, you know, over the course of a month, and I can, you know, just, you know, in incredible flexibility on it. But when you go to the Azure portal and you start poking around, you see, okay, well, I'm going to create a virtual machine in the cloud now, and you look, and you say, okay, I got all these Windows servers, and and wait a minute, there's like this long list of Linux distros as well that I could do, you know, so I could do um, Ubuntu Enterprise and Red Hat and OpenSUSE and all these, you know, all these things, and and you know, yet another example of of where you know, if you could get in a time machine and and go back. A, a decade or so, and um, and have someone say, "Yeah, you know, Microsoft, you're going to be selling your largest competitor's operating system, uh, largest competitor's server operating system in a you know in a cloud-based service." They you know they they wrap you up and put you away. We we ourselves are using Azure in a very non-Windowsy way. We're not running the Windows operating system. We're not using the Windows SQL server. Uh, we're using it in a very open source, Unixy sort of way. We are, we are running SQL Server. We're not running it. We're using All right. But I, I think Brent would agree with me, though. Brett, Brent Simmons, my, my colleague and my, the guy who does all the work. Uh, <laughs> but it's true. We're not, we're not, we haven't become Windows developers by adopting Azure. We're still totally iOS developers and doing this network cloud stuff in a very open source, non... Yeah, so you've got, you've got databases, you've got uh, generic storage that you can configure just about any way you want. You've got messaging uh, services available to you, uh, all sorts of other mobile services that are available to you, and none of them are 
our windows. And in fact, what's, you know, what's really fascinating and kind of weird for me as a guy who has covered windows for 20 plus years is that, you know, they changed the name of Azure from Windows Azure to Microsoft Azure. And that's, at, on one level, that's symbolic. Um, but on another much more important level, it's, um, it's a, a reflection of, of how both the company and the product has changed. Yeah, I completely agree. Uh, another thing I, I mean, definitely noticed, and I saw a lot of people commenting on Twitter, you and I talked about it pre-show, but during the keynote today, an awful lot of the demos were running on non-Microsoft devices. There were iPhones that were being used in demos. They, uh, I, I saw an iPad and a couple. Uh, right. Uh, there was a demo, uh, the Xamarin, am I pronouncing it right? Xamarin. Xamarin. The Xamarin demo was running with uh, 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 an IDE running on a MacBook. And there's Mac OS X up on the, you know, I actually felt at home. With Safari. With Safari. Right, and it was Safari, in, right. It was in Safari. Yeah, so, you know, this same thing. And uh, I, I think I tweeted this today as well. In a lot of the slides, uh, you know, there was a, a clearly a conscious effort uh, to, to be very inclusive uh, about platforms. But, you know, so there would, there would of course, be... Uh, the entire Microsoft range going from Xbox through the various Windows form factors and, down, and then down to Windows Phone. But then there were Android phones and tablets and um, iPads and iPhones and then Kindle Fire. Yeah. So there was also, you know, that at one point they said, and we've added notification support to, uh, to Kindle Fire. And, you know, it's, I mean, you know, you talk about uh, coopetition. But the, you know, the, the, the fascinating thing is that um, Amazon Web Services and Azure um, could not be more direct competitors. Yes. They're, you know, right. they're absolutely direct competitors. And yet, you know, you have, if you're going to play this, we want to be on as many devices and as many platforms as possible, you can't say, uh, well, we don't like that company. So, you know, Kindle Fire gets, gets excluded. It's, you know, it's got to be there. Um, and I think there's also something when you go around, you talk to the people with the, you know, the Microsoft name tags here, uh, there is much less of the sort of hold your nose factor when you're talking about those other platforms. Well, we have to support them. I think there's some actual genuine enthusiasm now about, um, you know, it, it's almost like it's a, you know, how, how many boxes can we tick off on the support checklist here? Yeah. No. I mean, obviously, no, no question about it. Walking through the hallways here and just watching, you know, observing, you see uh, very high, higher than anywhere else I've ever seen, <laughs> percentage of people using Windows phone devices. No, I mean, no right. question about it. It makes sense. It's, you know, it's the Build Developer Conference. But I see a lot of people with iPhones. Yep. Uh, you know, and it's weird. And so there's one of these ways where, you know, you, you close your eyes for a decade and you, you can miss these sort of tectonic shifts, but the Apple community, developers, users, and everything, is far more of a technical monoculture today than the Microsoft community. Right. Right? I mean, I honestly, I mean, I'm not, and I'm not even saying it's anything other than inevitable that with the success that Apple's had and, and you know, the quality of the products, but if you go to WWDC, and try to find somebody who's not using an iPhone, you're going to have a hard time. 
I mean, you'll find somebody. There's somebody with an Android phone because they're there just to write Mac apps or something. It's not like nobody has. And that guy, and that guy will also be wearing uh, Google Glass. Yeah, exactly. You just, you just know true. it. I saw one guy at WWDC this year with Google Glass. Google so. Glass and a and a, right. uh, and, and a Galaxy S6 probably. Right. Yeah, you know? you'll see. I mean, you'll find somebody at a 5,000 person conference using everything. But I took yeah. a picture at WWDC this year. I saw a guy. Uh, with a flip phone. It was <laughs> so I mean literally you'll find somebody with That was actually the next iPhone very cleverly disguised. You know, they they've learned after that whole Gizmodo thing. You know, it, we got to make the disguises better. Nobody's going to steal that one. <laughs> it was the day it was day 1 and they had announced the new Mac Pro, which is a very pretty machine and it, you know, looks very different than everything else and they had them of course behind glass, can't touch. Uh, spinning around, and everybody was like looking at it, and there was this guy taking a picture of it with his flip phone. And I thought, and I'm like looking around at the other people, and I'm like, this is way more interesting than the Mac Pro. <laughs> There's a guy at a developer conference with a flip phone. He's, he's like, you know, it's performance art. It, right. had, it had to be. It's like Andy Kaufman has returned uh, and, is, and is doing that thing. But, you know, so it is true of uh, you know, in, inclusiveness of platforms and everything, and yet there is still a lot of windows here. Oh, of course, a, right. Uh, a whole lot of windows, and 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 a lot of 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 um, pride and investment in um, in in what's happening in uh, in those platforms, and not just the sort of generic PCs, but in some of the more interesting form factors, and especially the um, the phones. Mm. Yeah. Well, the other thing, too, is the developer tools. And Microsoft has always had a golden reputation for the quality of their developer tools. I right. mean, and, and in ways that, you know, even people like us who've been only really developing for Apple products for decades even have always known in the back of their heads, boy, that, I mean, their, their IDE blows us, you know, blows our stuff away or they're debugging the way that you can hook it up. And even, you know, so it makes sense, though, that there's so much Windows here because you've got to be on Windows to be using those developer tools. But they showed some really cool stuff today. The thing that caught my eye, and I guess you knew about this because I saw you tweet, but I forget what it's called, but it's the thing where you can go into the, you, you open a web page, go into the developer mode, and everybody, you know. Yeah, it's called browser link. Right. So you can see the C CSS and the HTML behind the page, and you can tweak it. And all the major browsers have had this feature, and you can test, like, a color change. That's what they demoed. That you can change the color of the banner. But with this browser link, it hooks up to the IDE, and it'll actually change the source file as you change it there. Yeah. So you're cha yeah. So, so instead of just changing it on the page and seeing and, and seeing how it looks, it's actually you know you you could make the change in the IDE and see it reflected instantly in the browser. Or you could change it in the browser and see it instantly reflected in the IDE, right. which is pretty mind blowing, actually. And again, in keeping with the sort of ecumenical theme of the whole thing, they demoed that in Chrome. Yeah, that was, and that was, I thought the same thing. I thought that's a really cool feature, but you got to use IE. And then as soon as I had that thought, and they're like, and it works in Chrome. Yeah. I was like, this. so I, I think the answer to this is going to be yes. But do you you perceive the same sort of See change in attitude, you know, among the, for about lack of a better word, the rank and file at, at Microsoft in terms of 
Yeah, uh, I, I it's think... It's a new Microsoft. It, it is a new Microsoft, and un, unmistakably so. I think what's interesting, though, is that for outsiders, there's a temptation to look at Microsoft today and, um, and think that this change is relatively recent uh, and sudden and that it's related to uh, things like, uh, you know, Balmer leaving, right. for example, um, you know, or, or, uh, or, this, or the success of Android or something. And actually, um, you know, one of, the, one of the interesting things about having covered this for, for so many years is that a, a lot of the things that we're seeing today are things that they were talking about at the equivalent of this show uh, five or six years ago, in 2008 and 2009. They were basically describing the world that we saw in yesterday's and today's keynotes. And there was some skepticism from people, uh, you know, about, you know, are you going to be able to, um, to, to pull this stuff off? And so, you know, you go, you know, if I dragged out my notebooks from, uh, from some of those events, I think you'd see, wow, they, they, they did that, they did that. Yeah, they did that and they shouldn't have. And they, and they didn't do that one, you know, yeah. but there's a, there's a tremendous amount, you know, back then they called it three screens in a cloud. And I think, I think they might have gotten the number of screens wrong. I think there's more than, you know, there's a little more than three, but they basically said, you know, phones and PC slash tablets. They didn't, they didn't think of those as two separate categories and, uh, and the TV were all going to be important and they all needed to be connected to services that were capable of running anywhere because they're of gathering data from and synchronizing with cloud services. Now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, our first sponsor is Backblaze, our good friends at Backblaze. Backblaze is unlimited, unthrottled backup for your Mac. $5 a month and you get everything. It's a great deal. There's no tricks, no gimmicks, no upsell. It's not like, well, $5 gets you the intro version, but you, you, know, you want to spend more to get more. No, $5 a month and you get it all. They have over 100 petabytes of data backed up. Over 5 billion files, 5 billion files have been restored by Backblaze users. They have an iOS app that lets you access and share any of your files. Uh, so if you're away from your Mac and you have your iPhone with you, you have access to all of the files that are backed up from your Mac. It's founded by ex-Apple engineers. Backblaze runs native on your Mac. Uh, works great with Mavericks. No add-ons, no gimmicks, no additional charges. $5 per month per computer for unlimited, unthrottled backup. I've been telling you about this for months. I, don't, I can't believe there's anybody left who hasn't tried it because if you haven't, you're nuts. Uh, it, it's just an amazing service. does exactly what they say, and it's an amazing price. You'll sleep better for it. Here's where you go to find out more. Go to Backblaze, B-A-C-K-B-L-A-Z-E, backblaze.com, slash Daring Fireball, slash Daring Fireball. That's where you go. They'll know you came from the show. Um, and my thanks to them for sponsoring the talk show. Now, back to the show. So you you think it's fair? So I, the gist of what I'm hearing there is that you, it, it the casual observer is going to want to draw a direct cause and effect where we've got 
Steve Ballmer announces his resignation. There's a search, and then 60 days ago or so, they said, okay, here we got our guy, Satya Nadella. And he's the cloud guy. Right? And he's the new CEO, and everybody, the board's behind him. Bill Gates is behind him. Steve Ballmer's behind him now. Steve Ballmer's retired. He's not the CEO, and Satya Nadella is. And all of these changes are all going to be attributed to Satya Nadella, new CEO who's changed the company in 60 days. You think it's, <laughs> right? I mean, that is sort of how it's going to play. From, it's almost inevitable. From the outsider's perspective, that's exactly what it looks like. And yet, when you think, you know, we, we're, you know, you're talking about um, some Apple-related stuff, about how long it takes to build mm. these, these things. You know, the, the, the iPhone didn't come into existence in 60 days. It took years right. for it to be developed, years when nobody knew anything about it. And all the things that we're seeing today have, you know, pretty much, you know, a, a year, two, three, five years for a lot of this stuff. The Azure stuff, you know, I mean, that goes back a, a decade. Right, it has to because otherwise, I mean, how many data centers does Azure run in? Do we have an answer? That one I don't know the answer to, but somebody out there can look it up. Nine? nine? So, yeah. So, you don't build out nine, like, massive, world-class, billion-dollar data centers, you know, in 60 days. Nope. But do you think that's telling, though, that they did? I mean, do you, I, I do. I think that it's very telling that they effectively picked the Azure guy to be the CEO of Microsoft. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's the direction that it was going. It was the, it was the right choice... And I think it was the right choice to make too, um, is you know if you brought in an outsider, you get uh, you, you've added a random element right. to it, uh, and and you've created you, you basically then you create a, a level of uncertainty. Uh, bringing Sacha in as the as the CEO says basically, um, this train is not slowing down. It in fact. You know, we'll, we might speed up a little bit. But the name of the game basically is growth. They've got to find somewhere where they're going to grow. And Azure, that whole area of cloud services, is going to grow, clearly. Somebody's going to, you know, it's like the old saying, if somebody's going to make money, it might as well be Microsoft, right? right. So somebody's going to, I mean, there's no doubt whatsoever. I don't think anybody would disagree no matter how they observe the industry. Cloud computing is going to grow from here forward. Uh, so there's, it just seems like the most likely source for Microsoft to have significant growth. Well, look at Office for iPad. I mean, which is really, when you get right down to it, it's a cloud product. Hmm. Uh, the only way, yes, you can, uh, yes, it's a free app. You can download it on your, on your iPad and you can view documents and you can present a presentation that you created somewhere else and you can save files locally. But the, the, the thing that unlocks the real value of the of those apps, which are which are lovely apps, and I and I think they're going to iterate them pretty quickly. But the thing that unlocks their value is a subscription to Office 365, which runs in Azure, and uh, you know on consumer and and business sides. Right, because it's more or less like step one in the whole concept of the iPad Office apps is how do you get your documents there. And it's clearly the, you know, there might be all, you might be able to find workarounds for other things and you can open an email attachment, but the, it's clearly designed to use the, the 
OneDrive. The OneDrive as the way that you're going to... The product previously known as SkyDrive. Right. What's the deal with that? Why did they change that? Uh, a, uh, Rupert Murdoch is the short answer. The long answer is uh, B Sky B, the, the British uh, television giant, uh, owns the Sky trademark, and they actually have some cloud services of their own, oh. so they sued Microsoft in, uh, in the UK for trademark infringement, won the first battle, and Microsoft said rather than appealing this and potentially losing more expensively, they, they signed an agreement to, uh, to change the name to OneDrive. Uh, it's, it reminds me of what happened to them with the Metro name for the new user interface, where they had this seemingly perfect name for this thing that needed a name, right? and then some kind of trademark lawyers, dot, 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 uh, you don't want to know, and now, now it's like the new interface. Yeah, they, they haven't been very transparent about that one. That was a German uh, company, Metro AG, I think, and they, I, I think they're sort of like, you know, I don't know, German Walmart or something. Mm -hmm. They have, you know, groceries and computers. Uh, and it was one of those, they, they caved. They caved on that one, and, and since, and, and ever since they caved on that one, uh, every discussion of apps that are written for Windows 8, for the native environment in Windows 8, uh, becomes this awkward thing where you say, um, well, these modern uh, Windows Store, oh, well, Metro apps, yeah, you know. Yeah. <laughs> uh, remember the thing where there was, who, who owned the trademark to iPhone in 2006? Cisco, right. And, and they even came out with a product in December 2006, like, four weeks before Steve Jobs unveiled the iPhone. And it was, and I remember Gizmodo totally, you know, and, you know, hats off to them for doing it, but they're like, here it is, the iPhone. <laughs> <laughs> and it was a phone, and it was called the iPhone, but it was like the Cisco iPhone. And it was like, it was like some kind of stupid, like regular phone, but it somehow you could put it on an IP network. It was like clearly somebody at Cisco who was in this, these, these trademark negotiations with Apple was like, we'd be in a better position if we had a product using it. And they just were like, put anybody, this stake in the ground. Does anybody have a phone? And they, I think they just <laughs> took one of the phones and just cut the cable. Right? And they're like, somebody put an Ethernet. If you down. look at it closely, it's actually a Sharpie that drew <laughs> iPhone on the back of it. And then I remember on stage when he, when he announced it and he, and, and he said, you know, it's a phone, an internet communicator, and, uh, you know, whatever the other... Oh, iPod, yeah, uh, uh, widescreen video iPod. And yes, we're calling it iPhone. And you could almost hear, like, he wanted to say, fuck you, Cisco. <laughs> right? Exactly. <laughs> I miss that guy. <laughs> um, so, yeah, one, another thing I have here with Apple, and, and Steve Jobs even, and, and it kind of goes back, you know, to, like, the 90s. And there was yep. the... Um, uh, the famous Macworld Expo in summer 97 when, uh, you know, Jobs was the iCEO, interim CEO, and they announced the $150 million investment from Microsoft in Apple. And, and the crowd booed yeah, at Macworld in Boston, right? Yeah, and the giant, you know, like 70-foot Bill Gates on video behind Steve Jobs. Um, and... 
there's two things about that, I, that that I've been thinking about this week. I just saw somebody else. A lot of people think that that 150 million from Microsoft saved Apple. Literally, like kept them out. They were close to bankruptcy, but the 150 million wasn't anywhere near as big a deal in terms of saving them as the commitment to keep making Office for Mac, because that kept the stock up. Because it was like, well, right. at least it's somewhat. That was way, a way bigger deal than the 150 million in cash. It also kept developers from defecting. As they said, you know, if, if Office is available there, then that means that the biggest developer of productivity software in the right. world is still committed to it. So we can, we can draft right. with them. We can ride their coattails. The, the 150 million investment was really symbolic. And, and, you know, and I mean that, you know, I'm not a financial expert, but Apple had been losing billions. I mean, to go from where Apple was in the early 90s where they were flying high to be teetering, even mentioning the word bankruptcy, meant they were losing billions. Right. Uh, 150 million, you know, if you're losing billions, Christ, 150 million, you just lose that in Vegas. <laughs> right? uh, it was the commitment to office that really was like, you know, hey, Microsoft is still with us. And if Microsoft's still with us, you know, maybe you should be too. But the thing that I remember is that, that and they got booed, like you said, Steve, you know, they booed this and people wanted to fight. And Steve Jobs said, I, I'm paraphrasing, but I think I can get a quote close, is... Um, we have to let go of this notion that for Apple to win, Microsoft has to lose. For Apple to win, Apple just has to make great products. And if other companies want to help us, that's great. We'll take it. We, we want friends. But if we have to do it ourselves, we do. And we're going to sink or swim, lose or die by, are we going to make great products? Yep. And I think that's exactly where Microsoft is today. It's... You know. Although with a significantly better balance sheet. Right. No, and that's, it's, it's a huge advantage, right? So Microsoft, yeah. or Apple was actually in trouble. Microsoft is not in trouble. I'd say what the problem Microsoft has gotten into is more or less like they've, they were in the doldrums. They were in the doldrums, and you could also see uh, certain product lines that um, had whatever the inverse of a hockey stick curve right. is, you know, where there, was a, where there was a potential they could just go, you know, Bzing and 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 go down and drop off a cliff, and and anybody who's uh, who's looking at the you know the desktop software market, for example, used to be that you could get you a developer could sell a Windows program for thirty to fifty dollars fairly easily. People people would pay that for a for a very complex product. You could you know you might get a hundred two hundred. Dollars, um, and then Adobe and Microsoft could could charge a lot more than that. Today, uh, you know, the idea—I mean, the idea of a of a of, of someone paying thirty dollars for a program is is almost laughable. You know, the, the people—if you—if you ask for ten dollars for an app now, people go, "No, it's too expensive." You know, five dollars—they, you know, five dollars—they might consider it, but man, it better be good. And I don't want to see a single four-star review in there. Uh, and everything else is ninety-nine cents or a, you know, or a buck ninety-nine. And so, you know, I think anybody who looked a couple years ago at where the, uh, you know, just post iPad. <laughs> And with the App Store in, um, in, in full swing, you looked at that and you said, our business is dependent on desktop software and Windows licenses that cost more than $30. Um, we better figure out uh, how, how to let that business degrade and find the one that's going to keep growing. I think it's true. I, I really do. I think that even when companies get truly big, 
and Microsoft is a huge company, Apple is a huge company, but there's a certain DNA that always dates back to when it was founded. And, you know, with Apple, it really does go back to this DNA that when it was, you know, the two Steves in a garage. Uh, for Microsoft, part of that DNA, to me, is the whole idea of selling software. Right? Yeah. Because, like, in the 70s, there's this nascent personal computing market. And anybody who was like us and was into computers at the time was, can't wait, I, we could have a I could have a computer in my house. And there was... I want to write, people want to write software for it. And people would write the software and they would just publish it, or the source code, and everybody could do it. And Bill Gates's thing, he had like a letter that he published in the- I was just uh, thinking of that one, you know. Homebrew computing club. Stop stealing software, right. pay for it. Right, his idea was, you know, everybody was saying, everybody was saying, we could write software for personal computers. Bill Gates and Steve Ballmer, you know, together, and- And, uh, and Paul Allen. And Paul Allen, their idea was, we can write software for personal computers and we can sell it, right? And people thought they were nuts, right? They were, they, people thought he was absolutely nuts, and when he wrote the letter that said, stop sell, you know, stealing it, we're trying to, you know, if, if everybody steals it, we, we're not gonna be able to keep making this. Uh, and they were like, well, nobody's gonna pay for software. And, you know, he was right, but that's their DNA. And the world is really kind of shifting away from that. Yeah, well, the other thing, the other interesting thing about uh, the DNA of the company, um, and it's unique to, uh, to Microsoft, uh, was what happened in 1997 to 2001 with the, the antitrust trial uh, that resulted in, you know, the, the, the big settlement uh, agreement, settlement decree, uh, and then that was followed by a couple of, of antitrust suits in Europe. And so I think the other, the, the interesting thing about Microsoft is they still have that sort of founder's DNA in them, but they also have this, um, you know, w they were brutalized by those lawsuits. They were forced to change, uh, you know, just about every business practice that had made them, uh, that had made them successful. Some of them, it's a good thing that those business practices were changed because they were, you know, abusive monopoly power. In other cases, they were things that we take as commonplace today. An operating system has a browser in it, right? right? But, uh, but the, you know, the consent decree said you have to separate the, the, uh, the browser from the operating system and you have to provide a mechanism for alternative right. browsers or malware. Microsoft's <laughs> argument at the trial that, that the browser belongs as part of the operating system was, was widely mocked, especially, you know, by critics. Well, and they, and they made the, uh, they made the argument in a very ham-handed fashion. Mm, yeah. This terrible demo by, uh, by Jim Alchin, um, you know, who, it was a, it was a videotape deposition, and they discovered afterwards, uh, the, the, um, the government, David Boyes and his team, uh, found that they had spliced, you know, they had cut things out of, uh, of this video. Um, and when they, and they got to see the whole thing, it, you know, it, it kind of changed the story. And, and it even, and it made them look worse. It made right. them look dishonest, like they were trying to hide something. When they, there was actually, a legitimate story they to tell. The they had the truth on their side. They had the truth they, on their side, and they. But the, but the, uh, but that early DNA was win at any cost, right. um, which is what got them in trouble. And I think so. I think now 
a lot of people still have the belief that Microsoft is this cutthroat, win-at-any-cost company, and they have this, this image of the, you know, the hard-charging, rule-busting Microsoft of the 90s, but the, the Microsoft that I know from today and the last you know, eight to 10 years is one that is hypersensitive to rules and legal processes and will bend over the other direction to avoid mm. uh, the appearance. And even then, <laughs> they still get nailed in the EU um, for, you know, for things that they, they thought they had covered. Right. Uh, one of the ways, clearly, that, that Microsoft is different from Apple and that this conference is very different from WWDC is that just the mere fact that you're still here. This is day two of the conference. There's a couple of press rooms. We're actually recording a show in one of the press rooms, but there's a press room next door and a press room next door. So you've been here for two days, right? Yep. And you're here all day. At WWDC, when you have a press badge, you come to the morning keynote, uh, which is only 90 minutes. Microsoft. <laughs> uh, Yesterday's keynote could have been, I think they could have cut the... the uh, the, the big sequence with Joe Belfiore playing the, the giant piano connected to a Telnet window. That was, uh, you know, a little weird. But you, you, the press comes in, there's a 90-minute keynote that is largely devoid of technical information. They, they segregate. There is like, it's, they don't call it a keynote, but there's effectively after lunch on day one, here's the tech keynote, and here's where we're going to show Xcode, and we're going to show source code, and we're going to do nerdy stuff. Uh, but the morning keynote is very, very layperson consumery. Uh, and they flush Moscone. I mean, you're out. Like, when the keynote is over, everybody's out, including badge holders. Everybody's out, and that's to make sure all the press are out. And then the press, you, don't, you can't get back in. Once that morning keynote is over and you go down the escalator, you're... Unless no you've paid for a developer's badge. Right. Which then you is, can go into the sessions. Right. So that's like, I, I, last couple of years, I've done that, but I pay for it. It's not included, you know, my press badge is right. free, you know, you develop a relationship and you get in for free. But to, to come to anything else the rest of the week, you need a paid badge. And in fact, you know, and, and if anybody suspects that maybe they help me or something like that, I think that they don't like it when press people buy them. Because I don't, you know... You're under NDA. Everything's under NDA anyway. But the, you know, what's the, they they think? What's the point? Why are the press coming into these things unless they want to write about it? And we don't want them writing about it. It's under NDA. Right. Yeah. I mean, there there again is a difference uh, in just sort of the the institutional mentality right. of the uh, of the two companies. So the interesting thing about WWDC, I've never been to one, but uh, you know, I've watched I, I watched them, uh, the, the the live streams of them. Apple is primarily a consumer company, and so that keynote mm -hmm. is almost a commercial. No, oh, definitely. You know, uh, and you know, it'll take you can take especially when uh, Steve Jobs was was doing the things, and then the developer stuff is like, uh, don't look behind the curtain kind of stuff. You don't you don't really want consumers to, to know about this stuff because you want it to be magical. Uh, the Microsoft thing, first of all, it's primarily business focused. Mm -hmm. Although, you know, they, they would like, you know, Xbox, uh, of course, is, uh, is a great consumer success and they would like uh, the new PC form factors to be consumer successes as well. But when you get right down to it, most of the developers 
here are writing software for business users, for, you know, sometimes for internal enterprise apps and stuff. And uh, so that you get that consumer versus business thing. You also have um, the open versus secret thing. And Apple thrives on, you know, its, its consumer business is uh, one of the, its key strategic advantages is its ability to keep a secret. And, um, you know, Microsoft has tried that in the last couple of years and it's backfired. You know, you really, and, and so one thing that we have seen this week here is more of a willingness to talk about the future, to uh, outline roadmaps, even if they don't have dates on them, at least, you know, this is going to continue to be supported. This thing is coming in uh, in a future update to Windows, but we won't we won't tell you exactly when, but you can look forward to it. And so you're seeing a little bit more of that now. And that's really, you know, it has to be, especially for that cross-device, cross-platform world, you have to be just have to be more open. Secrecy just isn't going to work. Right. So like, you know, and it's the best example I can think of. So Microsoft came to me and they knew that I was coming for the the Azure thing with Vesper uh, and said, hey, would you like to do your podcast here? And, you know, we're going to have people do it. We'll give you a room. We'll give you a mic. We'll give you beer. Uh, and there was, you know, no other strings attached. It wasn't like, here's what we want you to talk about or here's what you can or can't. It was like, do you want the room? Like, the odds of Apple <laughs> offering that to say you, well, they wouldn't even offer it to me. But the odds that like they're going to say, "Hey, Ed Bot, would you like to do a, a podcast from within Moscone West at 4:30 on the Wednesday of WWDC?" Are zero. I'd say that's when the meteor hits San right. Francisco. <laughs> right. You would. You should immediately like call your broker and short Apple because clearly, so, you know, <laughs> something seriously yeah, wrong Tim here. Hit the sauce. <laughs> yeah. I mean, so just fundamental, fundamental right. differences. Very different. Now. A word from our sponsors. Hey, John again, uh, interrupting just to tell you about another one of our great sponsors. Uh, I want to tell you about Branch Fire. There's like a, a theme this week with the sponsors. Everybody's uh, on fire. We had Backblaze, now we have Branch Fire. Uh, but don't get them confused. Totally different uh, company. Branch Fire is a Chicago-based startup dedicated to building software that helps people work better. Their flagship product iAnnotate was the first PDF annotation app developed for the iPad, and it's still, right now today, among the top productivity apps on the App Store. iAnnotate lets users read, mark up, organize, and share documents right from their iPads. Over one million people worldwide, from students and teachers to Hollywood actors and screenwriters, uh, have used iAnnotate to take their workflow paperless. With killer features and awesome support, iAnnotate has become the productivity app of choice for entrepreneurs and executives as well. Uh, no, so no surprise to me that it's an iPad app. I think if there's one area where the iPad really stands out as a, just a tremendous device, it's um, about, you know, compared to iPhones and even Macs is uh, for reading PDFs because it is, it, in your hands, it's like the size of a piece of paper. And P PDF, you know, is sort of an eight and a half by 11 or, for those of you in Europe, uh, what do you guys call it? The A4. Uh, it's roughly that size device, and it just is like a natural fit for PDF. So uh, no surprise to me that an app like iAnnotate is such a big hit with iOS, or it's iPad in particular, users. Branchfire 
the team. They have hard at work on an exciting new mobile and desktop product called Folia, F-O-L-I-A. They can, you can find out more by following Branchfire on Twitter. That's at Branchfire. Um, they're on Facebook too. And you can go to www.branchfire.com slash get I annotate. Branchfire.com slash get I annotate to see the current app in action. It's a great app. If you use PDFs and you have an iPad, you've got to check it out. Really good app. So my thanks to Branchfire. Now, back to the show. So let's talk a little bit about some of the news from this week. I think, to me, the thing that stuck out the most, that, that is the most intriguing to me, is Windows Phone 8.1. Right. And uh, I said when I linked to it, just short and sweet, because I was pecking it out on my phone, but that to me it looks like from Windows 8 to 8.1, it has more new stuff than Windows 7 to Windows 8. Yeah, and what's fascinating, and I would I, I agree with that assessment completely. Um, and what's interesting is if you, I, I suspect if you went and talked to someone on the Windows Phone kernel team, they would be happy to explain to you why the kernel changes and the architecture changes from seven to eight right. were were uh, were different. In fact, they broke compatibility. Or, they they you know they angered people with that one, and so. That was, it, it, it looked like almost nothing from the user experience side, but it was, you know, it, it was huge from the kernel side. And, but once you have that, and again, this is one of those, those things, they were talking, they were talking about this three or four years ago, and now the user interface stuff is, was made possible. The rapid iteration in user interface stuff was made possible by the work, the kernel work that they did right. back then. And so, the, and in fact, they're, they're now, you know, bringing the APIs together for uh, phone and Windows tablets and Windows desktops and even Xbox, uh, so that I think I think the official number is like 92% of the APIs are, are are common for those. So basically, you know, the the pitch is that you can write an app. Um, you know, it's it's not exactly the old write once, run anywhere thing, but it's write once and have a relatively easy time of porting it to other members of the same family. But the only differences are the things that are obviously different. The screen is much bigger. Or if it's, for the Xbox, it's not touch. It's going to be, you know, an Xbox controller. And you have a, a cellular radio in one device right. that's most likely not in any of those other right. devices. The differences are the actual differences in the devices that the. Yeah, and so and so one of my favorite uh, one of one of my favorite apps. I think you know one of, it, it it's it should be a showcase app for Windows 8. In fact, is one called Tweetium. Okay. Uh, Tweetium, and uh, written. Uh, by a, a guy named Brandon Paddock, um, and it's, you know it's just an amazing app. And I noticed he had taken his Windows 8 app uh, yesterday. He got the Windows Phone, you know, 8.1 bits and the and the SDK. And today he was showing a running version of Tweetium on Windows Phone 8.1, which is good. so. I mean, it's kind of a, uh, a a a validation of their story. Uh Clearly a flagship feature, big, big part of the keynote yesterday, a lot of the news is uh, Cortana, which of course, inevitably, it was immediately headlined everywhere as Siri killer. 
<laughs> which is the worst, the killer thing. Everybody, killer should be one of those words where if, you, if you're CMS, if you put it in a headline, it should immediately like autocorrect. It just zaps. It just goes away. Actually, I think there should probably be um, you know low voltage electrical mm. on the keys, and it and it just gives you a shock. Uh, so that you know, it's like one of those collars that you know keeps you from right. keeps your dog from running outside your your property line. Should keep you from not typing that word again. Right. You you really should not be able to put killer in a headline. Yeah. Unless you can have, you have like a police report that shows that there's a dead body. <laughs> Chalk marks. Right. Yeah. Uh, and, and anyway, and I think that's a, um, it's one of those things, if you look at it for 10 seconds, you might say, oh, Sirius, Cortana, well, they're both this sort of pulsing thing on the phone and, and, uh, and a female voice. But, um, but really, Cortana, what's interesting about Cortana is that it's sort of uh, a fairly artful mashup of Siri and Google Now, um, because it has uh, the, you know, a lot of it is you're you're giving you you can give Cortana permission to access the you know your schedule, your email, your text messages, your your phone book and and addresses, and on and on and on your browsing history and 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 all of that stuff, uh, and and so you can get Google Now type. Uh, smart notifications that you never that you never had to explicitly ask for delivered through a Siri like interface, and so that's kind of you know that that I think is really the the innovation in it is is not it's it's neither one nor the other. Yeah, I think that it, it, it inevitably happens that whoever ships first can can claim to be ripped off going forward. But the idea of voice-driven computing is not new. And, you know, so Siri shipped before Cortana and, you know, Google Now shipped in between. And, but Google had something else before Siri. Well, we've got 2001 right. and, and War Games as, right. um, you know, as prior art. Uh, uh, one, of the things, <laughs> one of the things that, uh, that I thought was interesting about Cortana, though, and, and I'm not 100%, you know, uh, but I think my understanding of the way it works, though, is that Cortana runs largely or maybe even entirely on the device. Correct. Which is a very, forget Siri, but compared to Google Now, where it's, here's all of your information sent to Google, and most of the compute happens with Google Cloud stuff looking at your data and figuring this stuff out, whereas... With Cortana, it's on your phone, and your email's on your phone. Especially with the email thing. So Cortana is only allowed to read email on your phone, and that uh, cannot be transmitted to uh, the service. Um, and, and so it's a fundamental, you know, really a fundamental difference between the, the two services. Is, you know, Google says we want all of your information. We want it on, you know, your Google account uh, allows you to put all of this on our servers and we will aggregate it and then and then and, and it's a black box at that point the other because the other interesting feature about Cortana that I'm not sure made it into too many of the stories there is that there's uh, an interface called Cortana's notebook I saw that right. and Cor so Cortana's notebook is taken from the idea that, that apparently the developers of Cortana interviewed a bunch of actual personal assistants of you know of, of executives and said how do you uh, 
you know, keep your boss looking smart and on schedule throughout the day. And they said, well, we have a notebook where we have all this stuff about him we, this, that we know about him or her. And, um, and so they, so they've, they've replicated that thing there. But the, the most salient feature of Cortana's notebook is the ability to say, remove that. Mm. Uh, or, or include this thing that you didn't, uh, didn't see. So you have control over the stuff that's in there. Now with most products like this where you give the customer the ability to to tweak the thing, you know, we know from experience that 80 to 90 percent of the people who use it will never look at that. But for the 10 percent or 15 or 20 for whom that's important, um, it's really important. And the idea, you can go in there and say, I don't want, I, uh, you know, I just don't, I don't want you to have that information um, at all. I don't want that to be part of my profile. And, and you can do that. Yeah, it seems like a big difference. And I'm, I'm really intrigued to see once it gets out in the real world how people's reaction is to it. Because clearly that, that you know, for better or for worse, the, the story with Siri was, it was announced and it looked really cool. And then it shipped, and a lot of people found, you know, clearly found that it did not quite work as it was advertised. Uh, I think it's gotten a lot better. I think it's one of those things where, yes, clearly they they pitched it in the nicest light. Um, but but I, you don't get a you don't get a, a second chance to make a first impression. Right, exactly. It's gotten noticeably better over the last two years, but in little tiny, you know, the way that that. But, you know, cloud stuff gets better. A little bit here, a little bit there, a little bit faster here. Uh, uh, you know, the big, you know, they call it Siri, but the Siri is really the personal assistant. But Apple calls it Siri when you do the text-to-speech or speech-to-text di right. dictation. That works so much better than it did when they shipped. Like when I'm in, it's winter and my hand is cold and I'm walking in Philadelphia and I want to quick dictate a text to my wife or something works so good. It really does, but it's like, it's too late. They don't get credit for it now because, you know. Well, I think the other difference between the two things, uh, and, and, you know, a, another thing that probably didn't make it into too many of the news stories uh, today is that Cortana is extensible. Uh, yes. So, uh, so third-party apps can hook into uh, Cortana, and, um, and so, you know, there's APIs um, for you know, for an app to be able to have uh, Cortana as a, as a front end. Right, and so it's officially beta. They're calling it beta. They're launching it as a beta right. with Windows Phone 8.1. But 8 .1. it's going to ship as part of 8.1, right? Right. You know, it's Because Apple called Siri beta too. I think it's just a way of saying, look, this stuff might not work great until we have a couple months under our wings of... Well, I think, you know, Google did... How long was Gmail in oh, beta? beta. <laughs> everything, everything at Google is still beta. I'm pretty sure Google search is still big. <laughs> uh, uh, but they're going to, they're definitely going to beat Apple to developer extensibility because Siri is not developer extensible at all. There is no, there is no integration with third party apps. So even if Apple announces it at WWDC this year, which is, they just, it's going to be first week of June, that's not going to ship until the new OS comes out, which is probably going to be when the phone, you know, if they stick to the same schedule as the last couple of years. September, September October. October. Yeah. Uh, you know, and, you know, Cortana is going to be out before then. And they're, you know, a version, this sort of idea, voice-driven, right. personal assistant, 
But they're gonna, you're, Microsoft's going to have third-party integration before Apple. And that's if Apple does it this year. And who, you know. Right, and, and there's another thing that Cortana has that, uh, that, that Siri doesn't, uh, that Google now does. Um, and it's kind, of a, uh, it, it's kind of a big punch in the nose to everyone who, uh, all these pundits who are saying Microsoft needs to get rid of Bing. Bing's just wow. a drag, uh, just a drag on the business. Um, basically, Bing is, you know, Cortana is, sits on top of Bing. And Bing is not just a search engine that delivers a list of results. Um, it has, you know, there's a, there's a tremendous amount of semantic knowledge right. in the, in, in the back end. So if you ask for, uh, you know, what's the best restaurant that's, uh, within a 10 minute walk of me, um, you know, it can pull that up from Yelp and, and, uh, and, and give you that answer. If you, uh, you know, it has, it has access to a lot of sources of data, you know, the, the kind of things that appear in the info box of a, of a, of a search results page that it can also use as answers to, uh, to a question that you ask it. And so those become, you know, very competitive advantages that are there because of the, of the so-called losses that Microsoft took on, on Bing for all these years. If you think of Bing as, you know, Bing.com versus Google.com, those are losses. If you think of that as a, a, a sort of product, a, a consumer product that was uh, sort of helping to pay for the incredible investment in uh, information on the back end that was ultimately going to drive a service like Cortana, then it's not a loss, it's an investment. Right. It's all, you know, seems like science fiction until we have it, and then it seems boring and we complain about it. <laughs> but, you know, the, the, like you said, Hal from 2001, 1968, you know, we're getting there, you know? We're getting yeah. there where you just talk to the computer and the computer gives you answers. And having something like Bing is, it gives Microsoft a serious leg up over Apple, which doesn't have that and no. doesn't want to use Google to do it. Right. I mean, Apple has already demonstrated with Maps that it would, it would like to uh, sever potentially life-threatening connections, <laughs> uh, you know, because, because uh, if, you know, Maps are such a crucial component of a mobile device. Apple does it a little bit. I mean, they're, you know, they're not totally going it alone. Uh, Siri has integration with Wolfram Alpha for a yeah. lot of stuff. So if you ask Siri for, like, stock quotes, I think she goes to Wolfram Alpha. Maybe not. She might just go to the widget. But I know if you just do math, if you just ask her math questions, she goes to Wolfram Alpha, and the results come back from them. Uh, but I can't help but think, and this is one of the thoughts I've had the last two days here at Build, is I, I again, think back to, like, the, the iPhone introduction in 2007, and, you know, Steve Jobs introed it. It was amazing. The audience was blown away. And he said, now I'm going to invite some friends up there. And his first friend that came out was Eric Schmidt, then board member. <laughs> and they hugged each other, and they're laughing, and it was all smiles. And, you know, and the gist of what Steve Jobs said is, hey, Google's our great friend, and they do some amazing things. We do totally different amazing things. We build these great little devices with really beautiful user interface. They do search, and they've got maps, and they've got this YouTube thing. So we'll just, you know, use them for all that stuff. And then we don't have to worry about it. Kumbaya. I, kumbaya. Right. And then, you know, you, you all know how that worked out. But I can't help but feel like while I'm at Build this week, like you said, like, you know, go back to the Venn diagram thing. Like, 
I don't know, I can't help but think that there's like a no harm done, like you, Apple, you could concentrate on what you do best if maybe you went to your pals at Microsoft a little more. I, I don't think that's such a bad idea. I, I, there's a little bit of uh, the enemy of my enemy is my friend in there. Um, you know, that, and uh, Apple and Microsoft are in sufficiently different worlds um, and, and both face, you know, really brutal competition from Google. Um, and so there's always been this, it's always been remarkable to me uh, as much as the tech press and our readers might like to think that there's this, um, you know, blood war between the two camps. It's really, that, that hasn't been a thing for a long time. Yeah, and I think, but I think it is, and like you said, in very different ways, it is true though between both companies and Google. Mm -hmm. I mean, an enemy is maybe a strong word, but you know, if we want to use that analogy and, and sort of go a little over the top, it's true. I mean, that's, I think Google's, or, or Apple's biggest enemy is Google and Microsoft's biggest enemy is Google. Well, on the Windows platform, uh, Google has been uh, obstinate about refusing to support uh, Windows 8. There is exactly one Google app for Windows 8, Google Search. It has some other stuff embedded in it, uh, so you can use it there, but there's no Gmail app, there's no... YouTube. There's no right. YouTube. In fact, there's a, there's a whole, you know, there's, you could write a sitcom about the whole YouTube uh, right. uh, controversy there. Google cannot ignore the Mac, and it cannot ignore the iPad because the the overlap between their two audiences are you know it's it's people use Apple branded hardware and Google branded services, and that's you know there's a huge influential and wealthy portion of the population, especially in the United States, that 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 defines. But uh, you know, so Google can't afford to alienate uh, Apple users too much, but they can afford to piss off Windows users right. um, yeah, and, and, and hopefully drive them, you know, uh, say, hey, it's not us. In a lot of ways, it seems largely spiteful. Like, part of the sitcom you describe is that Microsoft said, okay, we'll write the app. And they wrote a YouTube app, and then Google, you know. Found an excuse. Right, and yanked the APIs away and said no. Even yeah. though there was a, you know, we're not even asking you to do the work. We made the app. It's here. Yeah, it, it was nuts. Now, a word from our sponsors. Hey, John here, last sponsor. I want to take a moment here and thank our good friends at Igloo for sponsoring this episode of the show. Igloo is an intranet you'll actually like. Love that slogan because it just gets to the heart of everything that makes Igloo different. You say intranet and you think enterprise software and you think things like SharePoint and you think these monstrosities that were designed in 1997 and still look like it. Igloo is totally modern, looks really cool, looks really like the way something like an internet uh, should look today. And it has all sorts of great features. And it's really, really easy to set up and use. They have integrated apps like shared calendars, Twitter-like microblogs, file sharing, and more. Everything you need is built in and everything is social. So your team can just collaborate. You wanna share a file, you can easily share a file. You wanna have a little Twitter-like private conversation, just your team, easy, they've got those right there for you. 
so you upload a file or you write an internal blog post. Your employees can share it, comment on it, rate it, like it, even manage versions. The idea is to get your whole company communicating better. If your company has a legacy intranet or customer community built on SharePoint in particular, you should give Igloo a try. They have a report on their website. You can look for it at igloosoftware.com, and uh, they have a big link to it. And it outlines the five main areas that SharePoint falls short compared to Igloo, uh, how Igloo does it better. Where do you go to find out more? Easy. Go to www.igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. igloosoftware.com slash the talk show. And once you go there, you can uh, follow the link. You can find the SharePoint comparison white paper uh, and all sorts of other interesting stuff. Uh, get started free of charge for up to 10 people. You can just keep using it free of charge. Unbelievably great deal. If you have a really small team, you'll never have to pay glue money. If you have a bigger team, you can start testing it with up to 10 people before you need to pay. Unbelievable deal. Very, very happy users. Uh, I love these guys. You guys, you should check it out. Really, really great company. Thank you to Igloo. Now, back to the show. The other interesting thing about Windows Phone 8.1 is, and I found this a little surprising, I guess it's not shocking but surprising, is that Microsoft announced that on 9-inch tablets and smaller and on phones, it is now going to be free. Or there's a version of it. That's yeah, that's the one. I, you know, I need to go back and, and read the transcript and, and watch that again because it might be one of those things where the devil is in, is in the details there. But I think, I think they said something like there's going to be a, you know, we'll make a Windows that will be free. Uh, you know, the, the, I think zero dollars was what they put on the, on the slide on the screen. And it was one of those where you say it the right way. Uh, and, and, and everyone, you know, it's the classic magician's trick, misdirection, focus on the zero dollars up there and miss the caveat there. It may be that this is the uh, ad-supported version of Windows that, that they've talked about, uh, uh, talked about through the years. But, um, you know, whether it's that or whether it's something else, the fact is that they've basically, that is a direct shot across the bow of Android. Right. That is, is nothing to do with Apple and the iPhone and everything to do with Android. And to me, it's one of the biggest mysteries in all of marketing, any field, tech or whatever, but certainly tech is where I obsess over it more, is, is when certain products either seemingly get a lot more traction than they seem to deserve, or the flip side when there's a product that doesn't seem to get the traction it deserves. And to me, Windows Phone... Absolutely. I'm not just saying it because I'm here at Build. I really do think it's a far better product than its market share indicates. Like, not even close. Right. And it just seems like the phone market is so weird. And, and even on just the Android side alone, just Android, uh, it just, like, HTC makes what are clearly, to me, the most beautiful Android phones, and they're just getting killed by Samsung. And even right. if it's, you know, you could make an argument that Samsung, for technical reasons and design reasons and whatever, that deserves a market share lead in Android, it just seems to me that on the merits, it's whatever market share lead they deserve is nowhere near what they have, which is pretty much all of the profits in Android. 
Yeah, they basically Apple has uh, has most of the profits in the mobile market, and then uh, Samsung has the rest. So um, what? Do you, your your main phone is a Windows phone? Yep. All right. So what? What do you think the problem is? Like, why do you think it isn't more successful? Well, so there's three. There's actually three phone markets in the world. There's the United States, which is dominated by uh, you know and and oligopoly yeah. <laughs> of, of, of carriers and is, is driven by uh, carrier subsidies and, uh, and, and weird agreements. So there's, no ins there's actually a disincentive for people to buy uh, unlocked handsets. They're Correct. expensive and you still have to pay the exact same amount for the, for the service anyway. So there, there's the US market. And then there's the developed market in the rest of the world where most phones are unlocked uh, and you have your choice, but they're but they're fairly expensive. And then there's where the next billion phones are going to come from in the emerging markets of of you know India, China, of uh, Africa, Brazil, you know all those uh, all those places where there's you know small dollars per device and razor thin margins, but the volume is so huge that you can make large amounts of money there. So basically, in the U.S., the, all the market forces have been distorted by the complete dominance of the carriers, um, which you know, Steve Jobs was able to actually break that somehow with a, a thing that nobody else has ever been able to, uh, to duplicate. And then in, uh, and, and so as a result, you have uh, you know, Apple and Samsung basically have all the deals with all the carriers here, and that's the US. Then you get to uh, you get to Europe, where Windows Phone has actually been fairly successful in uh, in in uh, uh, in the UK. It's I think over ten percent. Italy in, in Italy, it's uh, it's you know dominant. Um, in you know Romania, I think you know several of the Eastern European countries. So there's pockets there where uh, the the phones they sell for significantly less than uh, an Apple product, of course, and, and they're of better quality than an Android product. Right. And so the market says, oh, okay. And so they, they reward that there. And then the real battlefield is going to be in the emerging markets now where, you know, I think, and I think Apple's just gonna say, fine, we'll skim off the top, the wealthy buyers in these markets will you know, we'll buy, we'll, we'll pay. They're, they're the same ones who were coming to the US buying the products and then bringing them back home. They'll finally be able to buy them directly there. And then you'll have this, you know, basically a battle royal between uh, manufacturers who are building phones based on Android and those who are building phones based on the Windows operating system. And now that it's free, the competitive landscape for them will change significantly. Hmm. So do you, do you, are you optimistic about Windows Phone? Well, optimistic is one of those odd words, isn't it? I don't think it's, uh, you know, I, uh, I, I think they're going to get to double-digit market share yeah. uh, worldwide. But that it's, you think it's going to be disproportionate around the world? It's, it's going to be disproportionate around the world, yeah. I think it's going to be, uh, you know, Microsoft, Steve Ballmer used to say, um, you know, the one thing about Microsoft is we keep coming and coming and coming. We just come, keep coming hammering at you we won't 
we, you know, we, we don't quit, we don't give up. And so, you know, there's a lot of people out there saying, you know, Microsoft to just fold its tent on this phone thing because they're, you know, they went from two and a half percent to four percent and it took like two years, you know, and if you, if you grind out the market share like that, uh, you, you know, you're, you're never going to get back your, uh, your investment in the thing. Well, I don't know. Xbox maybe proves otherwise. Mm. Uh, yeah. You know, Xbox lost money, big money for uh, for seven years, and now it's a uh, you know it's a successful device. It's profitable on its own, and it has an ecosystem around it, and it has the the same halo effect that Apple's always counted on mm -hmm. uh, for you know for people to buy an iPod and then an iPhone and then maybe a Mac you know, and become a whole member of the family. The Xbox, you know, has played that role there. So I don't think, I don't think that Microsoft is going to give up on, uh, on the Windows Phone, but I think, you know, it's, I mean, there's just really a lot of institutional barriers to them getting significant market share quickly. And it is a weird, to me, like, historical tables have turned where, to me, Windows Phone is the classic Mac OS from like the late 90s where yeah. <laughs> there's people who really love it for the design, you know, and that they can speak very eloquently. Like, I really just like the way it works. It clicks in my brain, which is how I felt as a Mac user all that time. And yet you're like the third or fourth platform that developer X hits when they're shipping an app. And, yeah. and that sucks, right? It's, yeah, so, you know, if you want to call an Uber uh, in San Francisco, you're not going to do it on your Windows phone. Oh, I didn't even know that. So they don't even have an Uber? No, you, no. There's a, uh, I think you have to go to the, the, the mobile site, yeah. m.uber.com. M uh, well, yeah. welcome to... They would have made a lot of money this week, I think. <laughs> well, welcome to being a Mac user in 1998. Exactly. It's, uh, you know, I'm feeling... Uh, whatever the opposite of schadenfreude is. <laughs> yeah. uh, but I sympathize, and I do. I, I think it's, you know, I even saw on some of the, the demo units I had in the press room, there's a beta of Instagram, uh, and it's smooth. I mean, that's one thing Microsoft has always done well, is make things run fast. Yeah. And they're totally hitting that, you know, 60 frames per second, really nice animation. No lag. No lag, and like you stop, and it, it stops. It you know it just has that iPhone quality scrolling and and stuff like that which I have never seen on an Android device. So, yeah, so one of the interesting things one of the, I was looking at some numbers when I was on the plane coming up here, uh, the most recent Gartner uh, projections, and uh, and so if you take so they did you know phones, tablets, PCs, and hybrid devices. Okay, um, so if you take take phones out of there because that's a billion, and it and it weirdly distorts the market because in in some of those emerging markets, the only device that people will have will be a cheap smartphone. Uh, but take take that out of there, and you actually so you think you know the the PC is dying, but um, but what's actually happening is that the you combine tablets and conventional desktop and notebook PCs and these new hybrid things, which are, you know, it's a tablet and then you hook a keyboard onto it and it's a laptop and then you disconnect it and it's a tablet again. Um, and if you combine those three things, you get uh, between 2013 and 2015, you get uh, a market that's growing at about three to five percent a year, which is not, not unhealthy. It, we, we've gotten used to things growing at 
at hyperspeed, but that's not an unhealthy growth rate. But what's interesting is that the boring PC segment is the one that's shrinking. The tablet segment is growing, but much more modestly than it did mm -hmm. after the, the iPad's initial success. And the category that seems to be growing fastest, that's going to, that Gartner at least says will, uh, will grow fastest in that time is this category of hybrids. Uh, touch-based devices that, you know, like, like the Surface, but also like the HP Envy or Asus Transformer T100 and these things. Um, and, you know, that to me, so 21 million of those sold in 2013, 60 plus million of those uh, will be sold next year. Uh, the, the story I've heard, and it's one of those things where it's all, you can make up the story, you can't prove it, but the story I've heard on that is, you know, why, why are tablet sales seemingly not as fast as, like, iPhone-like and, and iPhone -like smartphones? Why is the, the sales graph different? And I think the gist of it that I've heard, and I believe it, 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 it rings true, is it's two things. One, the phone market is so distorted by the... Um, contracts. Right. You, you know, you buy it for two years and it's at a ridiculously low price. And then when your contract's up, they're like, come on in with $199 and get a brand new, you know. Or 99 or zero. Yeah. You know. And why not? And you tend to abuse your phone more. It's the thing you, you know, it's the smallest. It's most likely to get dropped. You know, it, it does get dinged up and you might act, you know, a lot of people, even if they take reasonable care of it, might actually need a new one. Or the battery might have died. Uh, or it might be, it won't hold as much of a charge. Whereas with tablets, people treat them like they treat PCs, which is more or less that they buy one and use it until it breaks. Right. The and replacement cycle, if, if they're like PCs, people are going to think of them as a five-year right. purchase, and the, uh, the, the iPad hasn't even, the original iPads aren't even five years old yet. Right, no. They're, my, in fact, are, they might not even be four years old yet. Four years, so it was 2010. Yeah. Right? Or was it 11? No, it was 2010. Yeah. yeah. Well, my parents still have an original one, and you know, I'm like, you should get a new one. They're like, no, it's brand new. It works. Yeah. yeah and, a, and a thrifty person. So it's the last thing I wanted to talk about is uh, I noticed yesterday when I saw you in the press room that you were working on <laughs> one of these devices. And I, you know, I, I Actually, know. two of them. Right. You were. You were, you were upgrading one. But. Uh, and I thought that was interesting, you know, that it's, you know, you don't just cover Microsoft. And I, I'm, you know, from knowing you from reading your work, I don't think you're using one just because, you know, that's what Microsoft... I, it seems like you are a proponent of the Surface tablets. Well... Or uh, you like it. I, 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 you know, it's, um, it's an interesting device. Part of my decision... It's, it's funny you ask that, because when I came out here... You remember Mission Impossible? Remember the, the, the series? So at the beginning of Mission Impossible, the series, he... Uh, uh, you know, uh, Peter Graves yeah. would, uh, he'd open this manila folder filled with pictures and he'd, you know, bring them out. And of course, it was always the same ones that he chose, but he'd set the ones that he chose aside. So when I was on my way here, I had this big uh, lab bench in my office and I had about eight devices on there to choose from. And I had, and I thought, oh shit, which ones am I going to bring with me? Because I have, uh, they were like four eight inch tablets and a couple of notebooks and a couple of surface family devices. Uh, and, um, and then this Nokia, uh, this Nokia tablet. So I said, I'm only going to bring two. Um, and I want to see, you know, I want to see how they work. Um, and so the, you know, the Surface is, um, especially the Surface Pro 2, 
uh, is, you know, it's a, it's a classic example, classic Microsoft thing. You know, they get it right on the third iteration. Right. This is the second iteration, and it's so much better than the original, but it's still, you know, there's just a, there's a few things they can do. Um, and so I think this, I think there's going to be a new rendition of it this year, and, um, and that will be one where you go, wow, they finally figured everything out and they, and they fixed it. Um, I had an iPad there too, and I was sorely tempted to bring the iPad and try and do things in Office mm. for the, uh, Office for the iPad. Um, but, uh, it didn't, it wound up in the coal pile. And do you think part of it too is more than just hardware though? It's, it ties in with Windows 8.1, which, a, you know, key feature of is a renewed focus on keyboard and mouse. And by mouse, I mean trackpad, you know, anything Track, that moves a cursor around. Trackpad, mouse, yeah, whatever. It, it, um, you know, it really deals with that that what were they thinking kind of objection to the original one where they just tried to hide all signs of the desktop even though it was there and and uh, and, and greatly improved. Um, yeah, so the Surface Pro 2, basically I've been using it almost exclusively as if it were a, uh, as if it were a laptop. Mm -hmm. um, but it is, you know, it is kind of nice if, you know, when I'm on the plane, I can just detach the keyboard from it and set it down and, and, and watch a movie. On it, you know, I think the the goal of those hybrid devices, you know, the, the theoretical goal is that instead of having to carry um, a a MacBook and an iPad, you can just carry one, and it becomes it it it, it changes personality to suit the the task that you I'm, have. I'm laughing because that's what I packed for the trip. Is of course, MacBook Air. Yeah, and so the idea the, the idea is that you know that that it, you if you had something if you had an iPad that could, you know, magically run uh, OS 10 and had a keyboard attached to it, and then you take it off and it's, you know, and it's running uh, iOS. Uh, so what did you have in the keynote when you were, like, in the keynote hall? What did, were you using a laptop or were you phone? No, I was using, I was using the, uh, the Surface primarily because it has the, one of the things they fixed in version 2 that made it better than version 1 is this thing called the type cover okay. thing that clicks in and it has an illuminated, uh, and and keyboard. it's and it's usable on a lap because that's why I ask yeah. is that you know a well the press well for, so first of all the press had they gave us tables oh they never give us tables they gave us <laughs> they gave us tables and wired Ethernet connections and uh, I think there was like free beer oh. uh, and, and everything uh, but uh, but no but I have been using that on with the with the type cover it actually does work on your lap as a, as a laptop. With the first version, the first edition, which only had one stop for the little hinge that comes out from the back there, um, you, you know, you sort of had to, uh, play statue. You, can, you know, you, if, if you, if you sit just right and you don't move, you could actually type on this thing, but it was, it, it flexed and, um, and, and it wasn't a comfortable experience. This is more so. It, it actually feels a lot like, it feels a lot like a laptop. But if I'm at home, um, I will either have a tablet, which, you know, could be a Windows tablet or an iPad, uh, if I'm, you know, sitting on the couch, uh, or a notebook. I won't, you know, the Surface doesn't, I won't use the Surface in that mode. I, I haven't heard a word you've said in the last three minutes, because all I can keep thinking about is how nice it would be to have a table. <laughs> <laughs>